Hey everybody, Magnus here. If you read the title of this episode, it's a pretty easy guess that I'm going to be talking about a Smallville comic book. You know, reading this comic and other Smallville comics, it just made me think how cool it probably would have been if John Byrne had done something along these lines for his Man of Steel reboot, you know? That really would have worked for me. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. No! Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own angled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I love Superman. So, that's what I've been talking about lately. There's a reason for that, too, but I'll tackle that in just a minute. Anyway. But usually, I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. That's how it is most of the time, but right now, it's, it's nothing but Superman. You see... This show marks the beginning of Phase 2 of a mega-series celebrating Superman. My last six-episode cycle was the first part of it, and I talked about shitloads of Superman comics. This current uh, six-episode cycle is also going to be all about Superman. Now understand, I've done quite a few six-episode miniseries dedicated to a specific topic, or theme, or idea, and those were totally awesome, don't get me wrong, because I do the best geek-oriented podcast anywhere on the internet. But, especially compared to other shit I've done, this Superman thing I'm going through right now is the most ambitious series I've ever attempted before. But let's face it, Superman's worth all this effort, you dig? Anyhow, been spending lots of time going through all different kinds of Superman comics. And not just comics, either. Last time, or at least in the last six-episode cycle that I did, there were comics, but then there were also digital comics, and then also two hardcover collections. So, that's a lot of shit. Now, a reasonable person just might ask why it is that I'm making such a big deal out of Superman right now. Well, in case it wasn't obvious, this year is un- Precedented when it comes to important milestones in Superman's history. You see, 2014 is Superman's 76th anniversary. So my attitude is there's no better way to spend 2014 than discussing Superman because 76 fucking years. 
That's important. It's historic. And so it seemed to make a lot of sense that I'd want to spend at least part of 2014 celebrating Superman's 76th anniversary. You guys understand what I'm saying here, right? I'll repeat it to make sure there's no way you miss the point. There's no better way to spend the year of 2014. You get that? And there's no better character to focus on than just how fucking awesome Superman is. And it's worth celebrating the fact that this year is Superman's 76th anniversary. So anyway, so that's enough of that bullshit. Now, if you've listened to Trennis Magnus Punch's reality for any length of time, you probably know what a Smallville junkie I am. I mean, hell, I introduced Smallville retrospectives as a permanent part of my format. Every eight episodes, I talk about another batch of Smallville shows. So it should make sense that I'd eventually want to talk about a Smallville comic book, doesn't it? Well, here you go, Chief. And today, I'm going to run my mouth about Smallville the comic number one. Now, I should make it clear right now that I'm not talking about the first issue of that bi-monthly Smallville comic book from 2003, nor am I talking about Smallville season 11 number one. I'm talking about neither of those things. No, this was the first Smallville comic book that came out. This was a 64-page standalone special published in and cover dated 2002. It was a sort of magazine-comic-book hybrid. It featured two comic book stories in it. The first was titled Raptor, and the second was Exile in the Kingdom. The story I'm going to cover at right this moment, though, is Raptor. Cover date is November 2002. On sale date is October the 25th, 2002. Cover price is $3.95. Title is Raptor. Writer is Mark Verheiden. Artist is Roy Allen Martinez. Letterer is Comicraft. Colorist is Trish Mulvihill. Editors are Eddie Berganza and Tom Palmer. Chloe Sullivan types an over-narrative piece on the difficulties of working on the torch. On the phone, she attempts to reach Justin Gaines, the boy who killed Mr. Kwan, the principal of Smallville High. She recalls how strange things are in their small town, noting the self-immolating football coach, the death of the principal, and, of course, the meteor shower. She's pulled out of the thought that the only good thing to come out of the meteor shower was Clark, who happens to be, at that moment, telling her that they have to leave or else they'll be late. They reach the bus to the paleontology dig just in time. When they arrive, Clark looks interested, but Chloe realizes he's looking at Lana, who's engrossed in the dig herself. Meanwhile, a boy named Greg Fox notorious for lighting firecrackers in mailboxes lately, bumps into Clark and Chloe. Apparently, however, he wasn't really all that hostile until just, re until just recently. Lex calls him on his attitude, and Greg storms off. Lex explains that he owns this dig site and that Greg's father was fired for attacking a foreman a few weeks ago. Meanwhile, Greg readies a firecracker, muttering about Luther's actions against his father. He tosses it into a dig, not realizing that it's full of blasting caps. Clark runs and positions himself between Greg and the caps, which explode. Luckily, Clark isn't hurt, but Greg is rushed to the hospital. Lex congratulates Clark on his good luck. 
Chloe narrates her thoughts on Clark while he returns home, talks to his parents about Lex not being at fault, and how Lex understands being different. At the hospital, Greg is smacked around by his father for his behavior after the nurse leaves. Meanwhile, back at the farm, Clark stands in his loft and looks out at the moon. Lex wanders in and says hello, and then explains to Clark that he's not pressing charges on Greg because he can relate to having an angry father and no mother. Chloe tells of her theory that the meteor rocks are an unearthly pathogen that enhances a person's sin when they come into contact with it. Meanwhile, Greg develops a decidedly dinosaur type of eyeball. He goes downstairs, tells his father that he's hungry, and then he kills him. At the Talon, several days later, they wonder where Greg is. Lana seems a bit disturbed thinking of her parents and how she started the Talon back up just for them and their memory. In the storeroom, she hears noises and then she sees Greg, at which time Greg tries to eat Lana. Clark hears the commotion and uses his x-ray vision to see what's going on. He then tells Pete to call 911 and Pete runs off to do so while Clark heads into the storeroom. Greg, su Greg surprises Clark and then attacks him, but Clark punches Greg through the wall. Pete and Chloe rush in to find the wall uh, torn through and Greg missing. Chloe picks up a raptor tooth and identifies it as a raptor tooth. They realize that Greg is going after Lex and Clark takes off for the plant. Meanwhile, Greg's killed two guards. He sneaks up on another and, and tears him up too, demanding to know where Lex is. He then finds Lex and tells him he wants to be made normal. Lex offers to help, but Greg just beats him up some more and then knocks him out. Clark runs in and smacks Greg around a little bit before saying there's more gas in the room than, all, than an all-you-can-eat bean, lettuce, and pork rind buffet, so they need to get the hell out of Dodge pronto. Greg refuses and then scrapes one of his claws on the metal, creating a spark and therefore a massive explosion that immolates him but leaves Clark unharmed. The usual crowd arrives to, to see Clark come out, of, come out of the scene. Lex tells Clark he isn't sorry that he was in the plant when it went up, and wants to know how he made it out alive. Clark tells Lex that he made it up the hatch just in time. And that's pretty much the end. So, what did I think? Honestly, these Smallville comics aren't really all that well regarded among fans, and to be completely honest about it, I don't really understand why. I mean, in a lot of ways, the story here reminds me of just about anything that you'd see during the first season or two of the show. The story's driven by Lex having to make hard, but in my opinion, justifiable decisions and then getting bit in the ass about it. In fact, this story, just to kind of talk about continuity a bit, this story takes place sometime after the season two episode Ray Do, because Chloe mentions Mr. Reynolds, the new principal of Smallville High. But... At the same time, it's still tough to nail down an exact time frame for this story because there's really not much else to go on in terms of placing this somewhere in continuity. But anyway, I digress. My point in mentioning this is that this is the exact era where Lex would try to do all sorts of fairly honest things that are mostly on the up and up and then find himself in mortal jeopardy as a direct result. So... All in all, like I said, this, this fits pretty nicely with the style and tone of Smallville episodes up, at, up to the point of this comic book's release. What sets the comics apart from the show is the inner monologue. 
this story has Chloe doing what television would call a voiceover and then in that she narrates parts of the story. Now, I assume this is intended to serve as a gateway for people who like comics but haven't bothered checking out the show. This creates problems for the narrative, though. Chloe narrates key portions of the story, but we're shown things that Chloe couldn't possibly have access to or knowledge of, such as Clark's powers. So, yes, obviously this story isn't told strictly from her point of view, at least not exclusively. As with the TV show itself, Chloe serves as the audience's anchor. But at the same time, it creates problems when you realize that, in general, narrated stories only give insights that the narrator himself has access to. So, a story where Chloe is the narrator, but then we also see things that she couldn't possibly have any knowledge of, it basically comes off as a kind of neurotic way to tell a story. Then again, though, I'm probably the only one who'd be very bothered by that, because I don't think most people would notice this or really make all that big a deal out of it. So, hmm. That all having been said, though, I dig this story. It's just a fun little Smallville adventure. So, what's not to like? Chloe's a wordsmith and a smartass. Lex is devious, but also a bit of a sympathetic victim. Clark's heroic, but still a confused teenager, and basically everything else. All the usual Smallville tropes. It's, it's just a good little read, you know? Now, I can kind of see the criticism of the Smallville comics when it comes to the art. Or at least, the art in Raptor. All due respect to Roy Allen Martinez, but I'm just not very fond of his art style. Not at all. You see, Martinez has this kind of scratchy, blobby style that doesn't really show the characters' likenesses to the actors who portray them most of the time. And honestly, by itself, that's really no big deal because there may well have been legal issues there that prevented him from doing that. I'm willing to consider that as a possibility. But I guess in the grander scheme of things, the problem here, as I see it, is that his art just lacks detail. Characters, their skin, their clothing, the sets in which all this shit takes place, and other things all lack texture or wrinkles or really much of anything else to give them any kind of detail. In fact, even faces have pretty minimal detail going for them. It's just a bizarre and incoherent approach to the art. In terms of line style, Martinez kind of reminds me of Barry Kitson. In fact, I'd be shocked if Kitson isn't one of uh, Martinez's main influences, because it, it, it's just the similarities are, are really, they're too many and too numerous and too varied to really be totally a coincidence. But at the same time, there's a dynamic quality to Barry Kitson's art that simply isn't in evidence with Roy Allen Martinez. Everything that makes Barry Kitson's art work is just missing here. And that's a damn shame, because by the end of the story, rather than enjoying the art, I was actually more kind of wanting, wanting to know how exactly Barry Kitson would have done this, this very same story if he'd had a chance to. You know, that's how strong the, the Kitson influence is. It actually started making me wonder about 
how Kitson himself would have done the job. Anyway, my hunch is that Roy Allen Martinez has plenty of room to grow and improve, and there's no reason to think he hasn't gotten better in the intervening years since this comic first came out. So, understand, it's not like I've got some kind of personal grudge against the guy. I have no clue what he's doing these days because, honestly, his name doesn't ring any bells for me, but my guess is his stuff is better these days than it was when he drew this story. So, alrighty then. I think that's basically it for this segment. I'm going to take a break and be back in just a minute to talk about the second story in this comic, which is Exile in the Kingdom, and I'll be right back after these messages. Desperate reaches of geekdom here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan the Toy Geek, Scott the award winning radio host, Jeff Scott's Minion, and Ron. Just Ron. Dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind. It's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Man, it sure is great to be back to from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death-and-return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast dot com. Is it dot com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman one half month at a time. Every Thursday, 
at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailitude.com. Oh my god, I'm J. David Weeder. I haven't podcasted for 36 hours. I need to make a podcast. I have to do this. Maybe something Golden Age. I need a partner. Golden Age, podcast obsessed. Got it. John's John's Toilets and Toiletries. John, we need to make a new podcast. A new podcast? I haven't podcasted in a whole day. I need a new podcast. Well, I've been listening to a lot of David Bowie lately. Let's do Starman and his Golden Age adventures. Ooh, who who was the artist on Starman? What's that Jack Burnley? Yes, we should cover Jack Burnley's run on Adventure Comics and Starman. Okay, I have just the perfect guy because I know another guy who loves Jack Burnley. So let me call Charlie Niemeyer and see if we can get him on a three-way here. Hi, what's up? Charlie. Charlie. We need you to do a limited series podcast monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. Are you available? Uh, Monthly? Well, Starman, that's Jack Burnley, right? Oh, heck yes, I'm available. This podcast is go. The Starman Observatory, covering Starman's Golden Age adventures. Monthly at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. I'm back now, and I'm ready to go through the second story here. Title is Exile and the Kingdom. Writer is Michael Green. Artist is John Paul Leon. Letterer is John Workman. Colorist is Melissa Edwards. Editor is Eddie Braganza. Lex Luthor meets his father, Lionel, on a helipad. Surprised to see him there, Lionel picks on Lex for being... for reliably being absent, so his presence is almost a pleasant surprise. Lex thanks his father, saying this is the first time he's ever called Lex reliable about anything. Lionel tells Lex that he has to fire people from his most productive section of the fertilizer plant. Lex protests, but Lionel tells him that this is part of being a Luther. Lex drives to town, admiring small-town America. Pete watches from a distance and wishes Lex would would just keep driving his super-expensive Porsche right out of town, but Lana defends Lex and says that some things can only be found in Smallville. Speaking of things that can only be found in Smallville, Lex drops in on Dr. Hamilton, who's come closer to identifying the properties of the meteor rocks. He points out that they change people into corrupted versions of themselves. He thinks they've probably affected the entire town. Lex tells him that the rocks haven't corrupted the whole town, though, and the scene cuts to Clark looking for something in the farm. Lex comes in and finds the missing keys rather easily. They then talk about Lionel's instructions to cut part of the Luthacourt plant's workforce, and Clark says that he believes Lex usually tries to do what he thinks is right. Lex, surprised by that, thanks Clark and then leaves. The next day, the newspaper reveals that Lex has gone behind his father's back and saved the plant. The end. So, what did I think? Well... As far as continuity is concerned, Exile in the Kingdom is easier to place than Raptor. Obviously, Dr. Hamilton works for Lex, so this episode has to take place after Craven in the first season, but it's obvious that Hamilton doesn't work at Cadmus Labs yet, so Exile in the Kingdom 
must take place before Nicodemus. So that kind of narrows things down to a stretch of seven episodes from season one. On that basis, it's relatively easy to place Exile and the Kingdom into continuity. As to the story itself, it's a pretty short little uh, character piece exploring what exactly fascinates Lex when it, when it comes to Smallville. For one thing, there's the small town Norman Rockwell Americana vibe of, uh, of the town. For a guy who's been raised the way Lex has, Smallville's got to be a pretty cool place to hang out. But Smallville's charm at the same time is a little bit superficial. Beneath the surface is all kinds of kryptonite-infected wackiness, and that's where Dr. Hamilton and his research come into play. Lex has a major interest in finding out what the meteor rocks are, what they can do, and how they do it. But third, probably Lex's biggest interest in Smallville is none other than Clark Kent himself. And it makes sense. I mean, think about it. Lex was raised in a shark tank where Lionel challenged him and tested him constantly. That's the world that Lex grew up in. So, coming to Smallville would be different enough, but meeting someone like Clark, that's got to be huge for Lex. Of course Lex is interested in Clark. And, you know, fact is, Lex just isn't motivated by the same things he used to be. He sees Clark res- Clark's rescue after the, uh, the crash on the bridge as his second chance to really be somebody. So these days, Lex's priorities aren't about buying expensive cars or partying until 3 in the morning. The weird thing is that nobody really understands all that. They think that Lex is hiding from all the enemies he's made or he's afraid of his father or or whatever else. Nobody really understands him. And oddly enough, a strong argument there is that Lex doesn't really understand them either. So the whole thing kind of cuts two ways, if you think about it. But anyway. So that's pretty much the interesting stuff for this issue. There are some puff piece interviews with Tom Welling and Michael Rosenbaum and Kristen Krug, plus a tease for what was coming in the second season. Which is kind of funny, because by the time this comic finally came out, pretty much none of this stuff was new information at all. Then again, this was back in 2002. And so this was just about the time that the comic book industry really started struggling with late comics. And obviously it'd only get worse in the future. And often, I guess just to be fair, there's usually not time-sensitive information in most comics. But that's the rub. There was time-sensitive information in this one, and so the fact that it shipped late was kind of a bummer because the only new content this comic had to offer for the three ninety-five cover price was a 24-page uh, comic story with Raptor and then a 9-page story with Exile and the Kingdom. So were those two stories worth the three ninety-five cover price? I don't know. My attitude at the time was that I might not have agreed to pay that much had I known that the issue would would be that late. I mean, we all know that this is a tie-in comic book. It was always going to end up in the 50-cent box sooner or later. 
but anyway, whatever. Look, 12 years later, so it's, it's, I guess it's water under the bridge now, but this is the kind of thing the comic companies need to keep in mind, in my opinion, but anyway. So yeah, that's basically it for Smallville the comic. Now, if you can find it in a 50 cent box or a dollar box or something, pick it up. It's a good little read. The stories are fun, and the interviews with the actors really aren't too bad, so all around, I think it's worth checking out. So anywho, as to next week, I'll be talking about Superman Earth-1 Volume 2. Now, for those interested, I talked about Earth-1 back in Episode 17 of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, so this is my big chance to get all caught up with with the uh, Superman Earth-1 series. And if you haven't listened to, to... my Earth One Volume One show, you may want to check it out. Again, that's episode number 17. So that's it for right now. I'm going to take a break and I'll be right back after these messages. On 30th, 2011, DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke in half. No. No. That's not true. That's impossible. Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths, heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions? He likes it. He likes it. Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson, J. David Weider, and Michael Kaiser take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures. Falling from the sky. Speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The new 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libson.com.
everyone. My name is Michael Bailey. And I am Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman wait, wait, from... Wait, 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 I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle-scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number one in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air. Eventually. Because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. Okay, I'm back now, and I've got a little bit of feedback to work through here. First up, this is an email entitled, Does Chris Evans Need Marvel More Than They Need Him? Sent on April the 2nd, and written by T.R., which is Tim R., and he writes in to say, Hey, Magnus, long-time listener, first-time emailer. I just finished listening to you shoot the shit with J. David Weeder, and something you spoke about in your intro got me thinking. You threw out the idea that once Chris Evans's Marvel contract runs out, that it would be a good time for him to cameo in some of their smaller pictures as he pursues his directing career. I was wondering, which party would profit more from such an agreement? The reason I ask is because of... As of this moment, Age of Ultron is filming, and he has two films left in his contract. A third Cap film, and a third Avengers film. Sebastian Stan, the actor who plays Bucky, has seven left in his contract. 
one more Cap film, perhaps. A Black Widow film. As they have a deeper backstory and relationship that could be explored on film. After that, Bucky Cap. In Avengers films or his own pictures, they have an out with which to continue the Cap franchise without recasting when Evans retires. While some fans love that era, others dislike it and some wish Bucky had stayed worm food. To the general audience, on websites like Tumblr, the Winter Soldier is blowing up like Loki did with the Avengers. The actor is relatively unknown but extremely invested in the role. He's known for his work on TV primarily, but this is his big break. When you have an actor this enthusiastic and who's already signed on, would they really need or desire to keep Chris Evans around when he's made it clear that he's there because he has to be? Despite the fact Steve Rogers returns in the comics? I'm not so sure, not since Cap's successor has the biggest contract since Sam Jackson. Granted, he probably signed for that many pictures since he is relatively unknown, but if we're honest, once upon a time Brandon Routh was signed on for multiple Superman films. And we all know how that turned out. Personally, I'm not so sure. If I was Chris Evans, I'd renew my Marvel contract and get my feet wet with directing on the side. I'd establish a name for myself in one field before completely walking away from the other. Just my thoughts. What are yours? Signed, Tim R. So, uh, Tim, first off, let me just thank you for writing. I always like uh, hearing from my loyal subjects. And I guess, you know, the other, the other portion for all of this is... Honestly, I'm not I'm not saying this to be dismissive of you or anything like that, but ultimately these are decisions that Chris Evans is going to have to work out all on his own, all right? I can't do it for him, you can't do it for him. He's got I mean, he's a big boy, he's got to make his own choices. Now just from a business sense though, I feel like I feel like he's basically taking maybe it's maybe not he may not be making a huge mistake but he is taking a huge risk and the reason for that is because that's a tough industry to succeed in and make a name for yourself but somehow chris evans has not only managed he's pretty much put himself i don't know if i'd go so far as to say tippy top of the a-list but he's pretty high up there and his stock has got to be pretty high considering one of the movies that he's made which is to say Avengers, that movie has made, uh, what was it, like a billion dollars worldwide or something like that? And then uh, The Winter Soldier, that's somewhere at something like 680-something million worldwide, 685 or something like that, million dollars worldwide. He's a bankable commodity. And to me, that's something that you protect, you know? And... It's just it's not just anybody who who can who who can get to that plateau. It's not just anybody who can do the things that Chris Evans does. And I feel like he's kind of walking away from something that honestly, I mean, look, to me it's a no-brainer, okay? If I look, I'm not an actor, but if I was, I would be in the in that business strictly as a careerist. I would want to make as much fucking money as I possibly can because let's face it, most actors have a shelf life as far as, you know, superstardom if they even get there. 
But if they get there, they've got a shelf life of, what, like four or five years? And then that's it. And then they're gone. It's the rare actor that can do what Brad Pitt or Johnny Depp or Tom Cruise or any of those other guys, that can do what they've done. Now, whether you like them or not isn't the point. The point is they found a way to stay active and successful in that industry, and they keep turning out you know, hit movies. And that's pretty much where Chris Evans is right now, or at least that's where he could be if he just sticks around. And to me, it just kind of feels like he's... Like he's missing the forest for the trees, you know. Uh, basically, n- not enough people are going out to see his fucking indie art movies, you know, and all of that stuff. And, you know, I think he's lamented on a lot of occasions that he's made, how I think, something like 20 or 30 movies or something like that. And he's only really proud of like two or three of them. And I assume one of them is Sunshine. And, you know... Dude, I'm sorry, but this is... Filmmaking is a business. And like any business, certain movies have more popular appeal than others. And the ones that have the most popular appeal tend to be safer things. Like The Avengers or Captain America, things like that, you know? And I'm sorry, you know, that you're fucking edgy art house movie isn't you know the big hit that you wish it was that's the business that you've chosen all right and it just kind of feels like you know he's being just a little bit snooty about it and look i mean far be it from me to criticize somebody else for for being unhappy with their job because i think we've all been unhappy with our job at one point or another i mean shit i worked for a complete lunatic for something like eight years you know, but it it, it just it, it feels to me that when you when you, when you've achieved the level of success that he has, shit talking your good fortune is the quickest way to alienate your core audience. And in this case, I haven't seen Captain America yet, uh, the Winter Soldier. I haven't seen it yet, and I suspect the reason for that really is because the opportunity just. The timing hasn't really worked out, put it that way. And that's really, I think the main thing, you know, every weekend that I was available to do it, Stacy wasn't, my girlfriend Stacy, she wasn't really available for it. Or when she was, I was, you know, it's just the timing of it just, it just wasn't really right. But I got to tell you, I saw Amazing Spider-Man 2 opening frickin' weekend. And... And I can't help but think if maybe it was just that maybe Amazing Spider-Man 2 was more of a priority for me. Is that because Chris Evans shit-talked Captain America and basically everything he's ever done except for Sunshine? I don't know. But I, at the beginning of that episode that you're responding to, I did float the idea that this would affect the way that some people have appreciated or would appreciate Captain America going forward. And I just, I guess I wasn't expecting to be one of the, I don't know, one of the people who are, who, who've been as disappointed by his attitude as as I have been. So, that's that. And, anyway, so, but to actually get into the, you know, the point of your email, though, how easy would he be to replace with, and I'm already blanking on the guy, Sebastian Stan, I think was, yeah, Sebastian Stan. Uh, basically replacing Steve Rogers with Bucky, 
honestly, look, to me, the appeal of Bucky or really anybody in uh, filling in the role of, of Captain America comes from the fact that they're a fill-in, they're a substitute, and ultimately... Captain America is Steve Rogers, and Steve Rogers is Captain America. And I, I realize that there's dramatic potential in maybe taking Steve Rogers out for a while, but it, it's all predicated upon the, I guess, that kind of triumphal moment when Steve Rogers comes back. I mean, that's kind of the consummate Captain America story, it seems. You know, a lot of characters have a consummate story where Peter gives up being Spider-Man, where Steve Rogers is temporarily replaced as as a Captain America, on and on and on. I mean, Superman has his consummate story, Batman has his, and it just kind of feels to me that this is Captain America's. And so I do see the dramatic potential there, but ultimately, like I said, it all comes, it all comes down to that moment when Steve Rogers comes back. And I just, I've got less investment in it, I guess, if... Bucky is going to be the permanent replacement, or to a lesser degree, if Chris Evans ends up getting replaced, you know, because that's going to have to happen. I mean, sooner or later, I think we can all agree, these actors are eventually going to need to be replaced, and apparently that's the plan, except for Robert Downey Jr., it seems. The, the plan is just to replace these actors as we go along through all these movies, right, and just keep it going. No reboots, just keep it going. And on the one hand, that really works for me, but on the, but on another uh, on the other hand, I don't know. It just it's affected. First off, Chris Evans's just shit attitude about this has kind of negatively affected my enjoyment of Captain America in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And then, as far as replacing him, I mean, to me, that's kind of putting a bandaid on it. That's not really fixing much of everything. I mean, yeah, sure. Like I said. You can have a movie or two where, you know, Bucky is is Cap, but if we know for a fact there's not going to be that moment where Steve Steve Rogers eventually comes back and takes over as Captain America again, I'm personally going to just be less invested in it, you know? And I don't know. And you know, there's actually an example that you that you brought up where, you know, Brandon uh Brandon Routh was signed on for multiple Superman movies. Now, the difference there is that Superman Returns was a freaking box office failure, right? It lost lots of money at the box office. And honestly, no one knows what Brandon Routh's contract really was. But we do know, A, that he had one for multiple Superman films. And B, the rumor went that Warner Brothers had an option on, uh, on Brandon Routh, right? Meaning that if they should decide to make a sequel to Superman Returns, which obviously never happened. It wasn't necessarily going to be Brandon Routh who starred in that movie. That was not written in stone. Basically, as I understand it, Routh's contract went that he was absolutely the lead for Superman Returns. Contractually. But for sequels? Well, Warner Brothers had the option to bring him back if they wanted to or they had the option to recast the role and like I said obviously they decided to go a different way with all of that but I think it kind of you know my point in in, in 
addressing, you know, this aspect of uh, of your email is that I don't think very many people looked at Brandon Routh and thought this guy typifies everything that Superman's all about, right? Now, I know that he has a few dozen fans on the internet and their goofy little Bring Routh Back campaign that ultimately was unsuccessful for Man of Steel. And for that, I'm very, I'm very thankful. I'm happy that Henry Cavill is in the role now. But, and, and again, I mean, I understand what you're trying to say here, that once upon a time, you know, Brandon Routh was signed on for multiple Superman films. But I guess the difference there is that, number one, Brandon Routh, like I said, I don't think he's anybody's ideal embodiment of Superman. But damn it, dude. I mean, Chris Evans is for Captain America. And it's kind of hard for me to see someone else uh, playing the part. And I'm not saying that there's no one out there who can. I mean, Hollywood's full of actors. There's probably some asshole waiting tables in, at some Hollywood uh, restaurant right now who could do a good job. But my point is that I've already come to really identify with Chris Evans as Captain America. I mean, I've only had, I guess, fair to middling interest in... Captain America as a comic book character just in life, all right? He's never been one of my one of my favorites. And I don't dislike the character. I never did, but it's just he was one of those characters that for me was just kind of there. And I didn't really think about him a whole lot beyond that. And the minute Chris Evans was announced as playing Captain America, at first I was a little bit leery. And I want to say that lasted only just just a few minutes, right? And then I started thinking about it, and I realized, you know what? Dude, I've never seen Chris Evans in a movie and not enjoyed it. You know, for whatever his participation was, I at least enjoyed him, you know? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know what? There's no reason whatsoever that Chris Evans can't do this. And so after that, we were off to the races, and of course, Chris Evans totally nailed it. It was everything I think I at least wanted from Captain America, and now we're left with, we're, we're stuck facing this situation where he's openly shit-talking his good fortune, you know, what a, what a drag it is to be an actor, especially in movies that he doesn't really like all that much, which, I, to me, that includes everything Captain America, and now, anyway, so I don't know, so anyway, a long, 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 long way of, of uh, I guess, getting to, you know, like the, the core of of your question here and I think like I said it makes more business sense for Chris Evans to stick around even if he doesn't like the fucking material it just makes more sense for him to stick around and basically do acting to keep the lights on and pay the bills while he pursues a directing career it just seems to me that he's setting himself up for Chris Evans coming out of retirement you know, returns to acting and all that stuff because he can't fucking find work as a director, all right? I just don't think he's got that kind of credibility in Hollywood. Maybe he does. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's got all the right friends and all the right places and they're going to help him make all the right movies and everything from here on in is going to be peaches and cream for the guy, you know? I don't know. I'm just saying that he's he's doing more than just giving up acting. In effect, he's basically switching careers is what it comes down to. How many people in life do you know of who have switched careers after the age of, I don't know, 
35. Of those, how many of them have gone on to any kind of success? Of those, how many of them have gone on to any kind of success that, have, that, that is in any way comparable to the success they had in their first career? And of those, how many of them have switched careers, gone on to find success, and not only success, but success at least as big as what they had before, and then been happy about it? I don't know about you, but I'm coming up pretty fucking short all of a sudden, you know? And look, it's not like I know the guy, all right? It's not like he's my friend or anything like that. And, you know, I don't, look, I don't know him. Probably never going to meet him. And so whatever. That stuff is not my problem, all right? It's not mine to worry about if he's content with his life decision. It just seems to me that he's making some really freaking stupid career decisions, and I just don't get it. I don't get it at all. I think he's making the wrong... First off, I think he made the wrong decision by uh, talking shit about his own movies the way he has. Because it kind of has affected the way I view his movies now. But I guess, you know, beyond all of that, it just seems to me like he's taking a huge risk. So, anyway. Anyway, so... If you got more to say on this TR, or for that matter, anybody else, feel free to email me, trinismagnus at gmail.com. Because, you know, I, this is something I'm actually kind of interested in, and I would love to hear what you guys have to say. So, anyway. Next email, this came from PQ Ribber, dated April the 12th. Now, for those of you who don't know, PQ Ribber is, oh man, uh, basically podcast podcaster extraordinaire, right? He runs the um, Overnight Underground Nightscape uh, or sorry, Overnightscape under... Fuck, I'm just going to have to... I can never remember. I know his website is onsug.com. That's onsug.com. And I can never remember what this thing stands for. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, this is the Overnightscape Underground. So, Overnightscape Underground. And uh, basically, he operates a shitload of podcasts. And basically, the way it works out is he's got something that comes out every single day, sometimes multiple things per day. And it seems the um, probably the most uh, prolific pro- podcast he has going, at least as far as r- release schedules are concerned, is the uh, Quackaversal Satellite. And, uh, but then there's also the Overnightscape. And, you know, basically, well, anyway, I'm going to go ahead and get into his uh, email here because his podcasting actually very much relates to what we're saying here. PQ River writes... Thanks for your generous word, generous and kind words and for getting it. Best regards, PQ. And what I think he's referring to is when I uh, finally read uh, his email to me on mic where basically I summed up what his show's all about or his shows are all about. And honestly, when I listened back to it, I thought, you know what, there's a very good chance that he could take actually offense to this. I mean, I meant everything I said to be a compliment, but there is a, there was a risk there that, you know, PQ might have gotten offended by what I said, because I could have, I could have phrased it better, you know, put it that way. I could have phrased it better. Anyway, but like I said, you know, basically he has, what it kind of reminds me of is this sort of late night radio show where the host basically says whatever he wants, you know, with pretty much no filter. Talks about whatever he wants, he says whatever he wants, and he's just got a very radio-oriented voice to me, 
Now, I don't know really a whole lot about, you know, uh, PQ or I, I, by which I mean on a personal basis, I really don't know a whole lot about him. Uh, you know, I don't know if he even has a background in radio or what, but what I can say is that he's just got this very radio type voice for me. And he has this really just cool delivery. And then there's the things that he talks about, this really just freaking obscure uh, pop culture. I don't even know if you can call it pop culture anymore because of how obscure some of this stuff is. But anyway, so it's just one, it's one of the best shows that's going right now, at least in my opinion. And whenever I pay tribute to him, and I'm already blanking on which episode that was, so forgive me, PQ. I just remember that I pay tribute to you in the feedback section of one of my shows. And when I listened back at it, like I said, there was a very real chance that he could have taken offense to that because, put it this way, I just did not choose my words very carefully. I remember recording that, and I was really tired, and I was pretty much circling the drain even at that moment. And I think right after I finished recording, I pretty much turned everything off and just went to bed. I mean, that's just how tired I was. Anyway, so, you know, I'm glad that, you know, PQ, that you didn't take offense to that. Because, believe me, that's the very last thing that I would have ever intended, you know. So, anyway. And it looks like he didn't. So, um, but once again, I just want to steer everybody back to the Overnight Scape Underground family of shows, which is, you can find that at onsug.com, that's onsug.com, and there's just nothing else like it that's going right now, and so it's it's worth your time listening to, I it, it it's just fun, you know, and like I said, it just kind of has this late night radio thing uh, going for it, and it just, it, it works for me, so anyway, so that's that. Next... This email comes from Fanboyimus Prime. It's entitled Strangers and Feedback, dated April the 15th, tax day. And Fanboyimus Prime writes, Okay, Strangers in Paradise. Something I've barely heard of and never read. Of course, until 2007, I pretty much read only Marvel, so that really isn't saying all that much. I'm just going to put your thing on pause here and say, You know... There was a point back in the 90s when it was kind of trendy to almost evangelize Strangers in Paradise. And I don't want to be that guy right now, but I do think at the very least the miniseries is worth reading. And if you enjoy that, maybe the first, I don't know, three or four story arcs from the ongoing series that spun out of the miniseries. I think those are actually very much worth your time reading. So that's just... It just, it feels like to, to, to talk about it at all, it almost feels like I'm running the risk of being one of those annoying guys in the comic book store from the 90s that was just going on and on and on about Strangers in Paradise. And to be honest with you, I don't know if this is necessarily a universal phenomenon because Terry Moore lives right here in Houston. In fact, he shops at the same uh, comic book store that I do. Right now, well, not the same store, but the same chain. Right? He shops actually at the store um, that this is a uh, Bedrock City Comics. Uh, he shops at the one on uh, Westheimer here in Houston, whereas I shop at the one on 1960. That's my Bedrock. So, anyway, so you listeners may not have had to contend with as much of this Strangers in Paradise type of evangelization as I did back in the day simply because he's the local boy made good you know so anyway but it's just at the same rate 
I don't want to come off like I'm that guy. So anyway, but I can say I suspect you would enjoy reading the miniseries. And then, like I said, maybe the first three or four storylines from the ongoing series. Now, there came a point in the ongoing series, and I'm not, honestly, I'm not sure if I'm ever going to revisit Strangers in Paradise. But what I can say is that there came a point in the ongoing series where it, I don't want to go so far as to say that Terry Moore ran out of ideas. I don't want to say that, but it literally was like freaking Groundhog Day. And those of you who have read the entire run of Strangers in Paradise, you probably know the era that I'm talking about. And it was kind of like the movie freaking Groundhog Day, right? Where it really is just the same scenario being repeated out over and over and over, all right? And it just got to the point where I realized that there's a there's a message here that he's trying to convey, and I just don't give a shit because I'm tired of reading this the same kind of thing, just repetitive scenario with like minor variations, just reading that over and over and over, you know? Just, it, it gets old. So, anyway. Long before all of that stuff, though, I think Strangers in Paradise is a really freaking good read, and you should check it out. So, anyway, getting off my soapbox. To get back into uh, Fanboy Miss Prime's email, though, he writes, Wizard, I barely read back then. A few issues, and didn't really put much stock in it beyond a full-page picture of the Tim Drake Robin and the various things his costume had, like the R on his chest being a bladed weapon he used in one of the Robin miniseries, or his cape being fireproof and such. That's the sort of thing that interested me and still does. And I just want to put this on pause and say, I don't remember that in an issue of Wizard. I do remember seeing something like that in Comic Scene Magazine, and who knows, maybe it popped up in Wizard at one point too. I have no idea. I'm just saying, I don't remember ever seeing anything like that in Wizard, but as I say, it's not like I had, uh, uh, or I, it's not like I have an encyclopedic knowledge of all things Wizard Magazine. I honestly, I don't know. If you say it's in there, I'll take your word for it, but it, what I, where I remember seeing that is Comic Scene Magazine, so take that for whatever you think it's worth. What I will say, though, is this. When you get away from... Almost, I'm, I mean, I'm almost tempted to call it an incestuous relationship between Wizard and certain Image Comics people, Image Comics uh, creators and co-founders. When you get away from that and all the, you know, the speculator stuff and the price guide hoopla and, you know, the hottest artists and all that stuff. You, you, you separate everything else away. And you just basically talk about the articles in Wizard Magazine. I got to tell you, I think that, I think Wizard was as good as any comic book uh, periodical that was coming out at the time. And probably better than most. I remember that there were interviews, not all in one magazine, you understand, but just over a period... They did interviews with, let me think, um, Paul Ryan. I think the, I, th I think his name is Paul Smith. He drew Fantastic Four. I think, I think it's Paul Smith. Um, they did interviews with Dave Cockrum, John Byrne, Chris Claremont, Mark Wade, and all sorts of things. And you really got an insight into what was happening. I guess in those writers' creative processes. You know, I think Mark Silvestri. I, to kind of relate back to image for a minute. 
they did a um, an article, uh, uh, sort of a feature about him that for once it really wasn't just a puff piece. I forget who wrote it, but you know whoever it was really did try to make something that was worth reading, and by and large it was. It was just a good little good little interview. And I guess what I'm saying here in all of this is that I realize that Wizard Magazine has a shit reputation among a lot of people, and rightly so, I might add. I mean. Honestly, a lot of that stuff they did to themselves, and they've got no one to blame except themselves. But, I mean, at the same time, it wasn't all bad, you know? And so, in fact, I was actually sorting through some of my comics um, a couple of months ago, or like a year ago or something, and actually found a bunch of old issues of Wizard from, I want to say it's primarily like 1992 or 93, and then going right on through to 1997, it wasn't a, a, a continuous run, because I, I honestly don't know. I don't know that I ever had a continuous run. But um, for sure, I want to say there had to be probably a good 20 or so issues of Wizard Magazine in there. And I got to tell you, a lot of those features really do hold up, you know? And so, I mean, yeah, the the layouts and print style and all that kind of stuff is very 90s and you know there's really no getting around that but it you know by and large these were really good you know issues that were coming out and like i said if you can just get away from the price guide and the hype and the speculators and all that kind of just crap i think wizard magazine is actually somewhat underrated as far as being just a, a really cool kind of industry magazine. And they deserve the lousy reputation they have. I Like I said, they did it to themselves. I've got no sympathy. They deserve the reputation that they've got. And I got no regrets. But I'm just saying it's, it's not all uh, puff pieces and price guides and speculators and all that stupidity. It's, it's not, not all of it was like that. So you get back into Prime's email, though. As for Youngblood, there's amusingly to me a decent idea in there of a superhero team with a bright and shiny public image and yet having a covert black ops team as well. The execution, of course, being terrible and the artwork being... Well, we know what the public opinion of that art is, and I'm just going to put your, your email back on pause here and say... I'm going to... I don't want to go so far as to call this like a formal announcement... Because this thing is a long way off. But there's a there's going to come a time when I get into a huge mini-series about Image Comics. Now, guys, we are at least a year away from doing this, all right? It's not coming anytime soon, all right? And so I don't want to go too far into details now except to say that obviously... Youngblood is going to figure in there. And what I'm going to say is just as just to kind of tease it is that you know what? I agree with what you write here. I do think there's a there's an amazing concept lurking around in Youngblood because you know the whole idea of a superhero team serving kind of as I don't know fodder for uh the entertainment tonight crowd and all of that kind of stuff and having you know, like a marketing department and, you know, consultants and all these kinds of things. I actually, you know what, we mean, it's maybe less original now, but back in the 90s, dude, no one had ever thought to do something like that, to basically run a superhero team as if, 
it's a product and they've got a marketing company underneath them that try to always put the best spin on everything they do. Meanwhile, they've got, like you said, these kind of nasty under the table black ops, you know, things that are going on in the background. And you know what? The execution, I cannot defend it. I certainly can't defend the art, you know, and the way that the stories were told and all of that stuff. But I do think there is a, a really phenomenal idea lurking around in there. And to me, it almost comes off like an extension of what Dan Jurgens introduced with Booster Gold. You know, the idea of a superhero who is very starstruck and very celebrity-obsessed, very fame-obsessed, you know, and gets corporate sponsorship deals and all that kind of stuff. To me, it's taking that basic idea and then taking it forward to the next level. That's, to me, what Youngblood... Well, that's what Youngblood could have been. And I think we can debate amongst ourselves how good a job they did in carrying that forward. But at the same time, I do think the core idea of it I think it's a really good idea. Anyway, to get back into Prime's email, though, he says, Though I found that with DC New, Savage Hawkman and Grifter, that with a co-writer and someone else doing the art, that Liefeld's work is okay. Also, if you wonder how Liefeld has kept getting so much work, it's because A, he's made friends in the industry, and B, he has incredible enthusiasm for what he does and to promote it. Though DC really burned him, burned him out to go from being enthusiastic about his titles to pissed off and angry to comment on Twitter uh, about Batman uh, sells without the writer and artist mattering. <clears throat> I just told that he was just utterly fed up with DC's editorial getting in the way of him actually telling stories. It happens especially with the long list of creators that aren't pleased with DC after working on the new 52. And I'm going to put this email on hold and say, you know, that's actually one of, that's by no means the, the primary gripe that I have with the new 52. I mean, there are other things, some of which relate to the actual stories and some of them really, I guess, have more to do maybe with me. But there is an element there that I think is absolutely true. You know, I started off, pretty much on board, as I've said, with the New 52, and one of the things that became very apparent with Superman, that is, the monthly title called Superman, is that George Perez wasn't really allowed to do what he wanted to do. You know, basically, what DC wanted was a rock star name like uh, George Perez, but they didn't want him to actually tell his stories. They wanted him to tell their stories. And I guess on a, on a practical level, you know, like a legal level, I, sure, I guess they have the right to do that. Why not? But on the other hand, you know, at the same time, it just feels like the writers are constantly being limited and they're stifled and they're kept on these really short leashes and all that stuff. And they're just not telling the stories that they want to tell in most cases. Now, I'm sure there are exceptions. I mean, I hear that Brian Azzarello definitely is doing his own thing with Wonder Woman. And also, Jeff Johns. I mean, who's really going to try to limit him whenever he was doing Green Lantern? And then when Grant Morrison was on Batman, you know, on and on and on. But in general, what I find is that 
basically the writers just weren't left the hell alone to to tell their stories. I mean, I'm a look, I'm I'm not the one that has to put this stuff out every month, so maybe I'm not the one who should be saying something, but it always felt to me like you only really ride your writer's balls about things when the work is bad or something's going just really, really wrong. You know, but from what I can gather, just take George Perez, for example. Everything that he was doing on Superman seemed to be selling. So I guess why was everyone giving him such a hard time about it at DC? I don't know. But apparently it was bad enough that he just up and quit the book after, what, like six months or something like that? Just six issues? That's it? And anyway, so you hear one or two of those stories and, you know, it's kind of hard to take it seriously. But after like the ninth or tenth writer says that DC's constantly up in their business, by which I mean editorial, constantly up in their business about, you know, what the stories are and how they're being told, this, that, and the other. After a while, you kind of start to have to believe it. Anyway, to get back into Prime's email, though. Though I'm still not touching the Gail Simone writing with Rob Liefeld art fill-in pair of issues. As for the Strangers in Paradise miniseries, that sounded interesting. Yeah, that part got the least talked about in the entire email, but that was the topic of the episode. The comment I made about the Star Trek adventure set between the third and fourth movies not really fitting in is to what DC did with uh, their first Star Trek TOS comic at the start of the series. Man, did they have to do some crazy stuff to make it fit with the start of Voyage Home. As was seen in the Star Trek Monthly Mondays reviews of those comics in question. I can, un- and by which, that, by the way, that's him talking about two true freaks, my benefactors. But anyway, get back into his email. I can understand you thinking Darth Maul was an assassin and dagger. Not in any sense able to do Darth Vader's job. But what about Count Dooku? I'm going to put this on pause and say, my impression of Count Dooku is that... Could he have been an, a, 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 I don't know, the, I guess the front man, the administrator for the Empire like, like Vader was? Yeah, he could have done that. Here's the thing, though. I think, ultimately, Count Dooku's ambitions would have gotten the better of him, and sooner or later, it would have come down between him and the Emperor. And... I think in the long term, the Emperor knew that. And I think that's pro- that's that may have been one of the one of uh, his major considerations in offering up Count Dooku as a sacrificial lamb to Anakin Skywalker. Basically, it accomplished two things. I mean, by that point, the Clone War was pretty much winding down, and so you didn't really necessarily need Count Dooku. Or in fact, there's a sense in which maybe his continued presence is actually going to continue the uh, the separatist true believers, keep them motivated. The minute Count Dooku's dead, you've struck a major blow you know, to the separatists, the people that believe in the separatist cause but maybe aren't really part of uh, the emperor's conspiracy, right? So there's that. The other thing, though, is that you know, if you just take the long view, I think sooner or later... Count Dooku would have decided, you know what, motherfucker, I am just as capable of administrating this empire as anybody. And, (coughs) excuse me. And so, why can't I run the universe? And, you know, Darth Vader was 
so fucked up after his battle with Obi-Wan that, you know, let's face it, Darth Vader may have had ambitions of his own, but in the end, I don't think he would have dared cross the Emperor. I think Dooku would have, you know? Dooku would have... Sooner or later, he would have tested the waters, you know? Is it possible for me to... Um, uh, eventually get the drop on the Emperor and then take over, become the new Sith Lord, the leader. I don't know. So yeah, I mean, he could have done Vader's job. I just think he would have eventually gotten a little too big for his britches. And so I think the Emperor knew that and also realized that ultimately Anakin was the guy that was probably better suited for the job anyway. And, you know, who knew that he was going to end up getting so fucked up on uh, Mustafar and everything. I mean, who saw that coming? But anyway, that yeah, that's just the way I look at it. Sooner or later, Count Dooku would have made a move against the Emperor, and the Emperor would have needed to slap him down. And that's just bad for business, you know. What do you you know What do you tell the press when you know your your main henchman suddenly turns up dead, and there's suspicion that you had something to do with it? I mean, it's just. Nobody needs those headaches, so that's just how I feel about it. Next, getting back into a Prime's email, he writes, On Spider-Man's unmasking and such, there's a story in Sensational Spider-Man that had Mr. Hyde trying to turn teens into copies of Spider-Man. He dressed them in the, uh, the various Spider-Man costumes that there have been over the years, from the well-known to obscure, and empowered them. It went horribly, and Peter had to stop him. That story, and a, lot of, uh, and a lot of things, got thrown out the window, and that personally annoys me. Then again, I'm not one for utterly trashing what, what's gone before to fix things. I'm going to put your email in pause and say, I'm not completely sure where this is coming from, because, you know, I didn't, no offense, I just didn't really listen to this episode before recording this feedback stuff here. But um, I'll just smile and agree with you, nod my head. And, but also, I mean, you do actually raise, though, uh, kind of a point that I kind of wish other right. I don't know what it is that happens in comics, but you have a writer on a comic, and he's plugging, a, plugging away at it. And, you know, maybe it's a good comic. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's good stuff. It's a good era for Spider-Man or whoever. Or maybe it's not. And then he goes on, you know, does other stuff. And then you get, eventually, some new writer who comes along, and not always, but once in a while, there's a little bit of shit talking in the pages of the new book where it's almost like it's sort of metatextual commentary on what had come before. And I'm drawing blanks on specifics, especially in terms of the writers. I can't remember who, who the writer was, but basically one particular writer showed I don't some nobody supervillain beating up on Spider-Man, right? And then years down the line... Roger Stern comes along, and I think that was in Spectacular Spider-Man, and then Roger Stern comes along in Amazing Spider-Man, and Spider-Man faces that same supervillain and beats the piss out of him and said, look, you got the drop on me one time, but, dude, you're not A-list. You're never going to be able to take me down. I was sick that day or something. You know, I forget what it was. And, you know, it's a kind of funny moment, and usually it's not my business to criticize anything Roger Stern does, but... That, to me, just kind of felt out of place. You know? And I'm pretty sure it was Roger, Roger Stern who did that. I'm, I could be wrong. 
I thought it was Roger Stern, and if it wasn't, forgive me. But anyway, and I just kind of thought that was a little bit out of line, you know? If you Look, if you don't like what came before, that's fine. Just don't talk about it, you know? Um, how often do you really hear all that much about Rosalind Sharp these days in Daredevil comics? Well, not very often. But there was a point when she was a fairly important character in Daredevil, you know? So, anyway... That's that stuff. Uh, getting back into the email, though. And Magnus, you talk about them not wanting to kill off Mary Jane is false, as they did that once already to make Peter single in the late 90s or early 2000s. Had the plane she was on exploded and she was thought dead until she returned to the series after a year or two, so, yeah, they already tried that once. And, honestly, putting your email on pause, honestly, I did not know that, so fair enough. I'm just really not, as I've said before, really not a huge Spider-Man expert. So, you know, little things like that. Dude, I'm willing to take your word for it. So, anyway, getting back in the email. Love the episode, even if I did talk about things other than the main topic. Till all are one. Fanboyamus Prime. So, let me just start off by saying thank you, everyone, that uh, wrote in this, uh, well, I say this week. I've actually, this actually, I've sort of sat on feedback for a while here, as might be obvious. Uh, but all the same, thanks to everybody who wrote in. Definitely appreciate, you know, hearing from all of you. And I like, you know, the interaction of it, you know, uh, kind of the, the going back and forth and everything. So, you know, it's a lot of fun. And I just, again, thank everybody for uh, writing in like that. So um, now as to iTunes reviews, uh, basically, I don't think I've actually touched on this in a while. It's, uh, but, uh, you know, in, in terms of iTunes reviews... In fact, you know what? When was the last time I did some iTunes? I honestly don't know. But I don't think I've got any. I'm actually too lazy to check. But I don't think I have any new iTunes reviews to sort through here. So, um, but for those of you who want to leave feedback, you can send it to trennismagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. And... Uh, everything that gets emailed to me is going to be read on mic unless you say that it's not meant for public consumption and then of course keep it to myself as to iTunes reviews those will be read on mic and you can uh, search for my feed at um, at uh, this is uh, Two True Freaks presents Trennis Magnus Punches Reality please don't leave anything for my uh, old feed because I don't really do anything with that anymore so uh, if you can just uh, seek out my new feed two true freaks presents trennis magnus punches reality to search for that file a review and uh, it will be read on mic as i hope i've demonstrated i'm really willing to read just about any itunes review on mic so i think that's that so um as to next week i'm basically going to be continuing my look back at Superman and celebrating his 76th anniversary this time around, or next time around, the uh, subject is going to be Superman Earth 1 Volume 2 so come back and uh, listen, listen to that got that coming up and uh, otherwise I think that's pretty much it, so bye everybody and I'll see you next week okay, so I think that's just about the end of that Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network you can find the home for trentus magnus punches reality at two truefreaks.com which is spelled t-w-o-t-r-u-e 
F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S M-A-G-N-U-S-S You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S M-A-G-N-U-S Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.